let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Welcome back to Healthcare Strategies. This is Colin Murphy, Vice President of Editorial at Excelligent Healthcare Media. In today's episode, we're talking medical and health research with one of the nation's leading advocates and discussing the myriad challenges facing the research community, from government funding and workforce development to health equity and potential breakthroughs in research. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Mary Woolley, President of Research America, an alliance that advocates for science, discovery, and innovation to achieve better health for all. She is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and served two terms on its governing council. Additionally, Woolley has a 30-year editorial and publication history on science advocacy and research-related topics. She received a Bachelor of Science from Stanford University and a Master of Arts from San Francisco State University. In her early career, Woolley served as San Francisco Project Director for the then-largest-ever NIH-funded clinical trial, the Multiple Risk Factor Intervention Trial. She has served as president and CEO of Research America since 1990. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Kyle. A real pleasure to talk with you today. All right. So first things first, let's talk about the role of Research America over the years. You've you've been there since 1990. How has the organization's mission and priorities changed over the years? Well, our mission hasn't changed at all. And you mentioned it in the introduction. We are advocates for science, discovery, and innovation to achieve better health for all. And another thing that hasn't changed that is truly important to accomplishing our mission is that we're an alliance. And that means we're composed of the members of the full ecosystem that are critical to achieving medical progress. So we're talking about academia, industry, patient organizations, scientific and clinical societies, and also some foundations. Uh, So they are all work together. We talk, we speak with one voice, which is really important in advocacy. So what has changed over the years is the environment that we work in. It's changed politically, it's changed to a certain extent ideologically, but it's also changed in terms of health threats. The pandemic, of course, top of mind. But back in the early 90s, when we commissioned a survey and asked the American public, what health challenge do you think is the most important in this nation right now? And the answer was HIV AIDS, because we had not gotten to the point where HIV AIDS, thanks to research, is now where it's a manageable chronic disease, kind of like diabetes, that someday we're going to defeat, just like diabetes. I mean, defeat altogether, thanks to research. But anyway, that was then. Now, in our most recent survey, we learned that the cost of healthcare is considered by Americans to be the number one health challenge. That's a pretty big difference. Now, people also said they're concerned about mental health challenges, in particular cancer, that's always been high on the list, and the opioid crisis. So things have changed. Other things have changed too, all around us. So we are in the moment, and we work with our alliance to be sure that we can all stay in the moment. The breakthroughs on HIV and AIDS are actually tremendous. As someone born in 1980s, that was terrifying at that particular period of time, and obviously. 
certain subpopulation was kind of targeted and has stigma attached to them. And it's really impressive where we are today versus where we were just, what, 30 years ago? It's really tremendous. And research obviously has a lot to, to do with those breakthroughs and making this a livable disease. That's right. It wouldn't have been possible without research. We would be looking at the equivalent of the iron lung situation for polio before polio was ultimately defeated. Just as frightening, just as much of a killer as HIV AIDS. But there's lots more to do, and a lot, a lot more has happened over the course of the last 30 years to extend quality of life for many people, to help prevent disease and disability in many cases. But there's much more to do, much more. Describe some of the challenges around funding for medical and health research. Obviously, funding is what makes it all possible, but it requires you working with you know, federal governments and, and other organizations to make this possible. Has it become more challenging to, to get that funding or is there enough support now that organizations realize and governments realize that this is mission critical for the health of their populations? Great question and the word challenge is critical because this is a year of significant challenge. Not, I would not say worse than ever before, but that some years are more straightforward than others in terms of achieving bipartisan support for funding. Now, why is, let me back up a minute and say, why is public funding so important? There's a little bit of an analogy with the defense priority that this nation holds high, as it should. It can't all be done by the private sector. There is a public good here by assuring that meeting a priority of that level, defense or arguably health, requires not only expenditure of public funds, but coordination so that the private sector is included. It's a, the public funding is kind of like seed corn for the entire ecosystem to thrive. It leads to the private sector. You go from .gov to .edu, typically academia, to .com when research breakthroughs are commercialized. So, and there is a definite analogy to defense. However, defense is a consumer of many more times as dollars as research for health is, you know, seven, eight times at least. And maintaining medical and health research as a priority for federal funding is what advocacy is all about. And, you know, when it comes right down to the bottom line, the problem we're facing right now is that it's taken for granted. And actually, a few members of Congress are starting to use that kind of language. We become complacent and assume that progress is going to continue to happen. The pandemic was a real wake-up call about not only do we need to move faster, we can move faster, but to make sure that we continue moving faster in all areas so we can defeat Alzheimer's, we can find ways to overcome the opioid crisis, we can find ways to control healthcare costs by using evidence of what works and not getting ourselves into situations where healthcare that is not evidence-based is being used at the level it is today, healthcare delivery. We've got to turn that around. But this is a time of challenge. There are both ideological challenges and debt ceiling challenges to the conduct of research, to putting more money into it right now. Some of the leadership in the House actually wants to go backwards in time on funding, not just freeze it, which is bad enough, that stifles progress, but to cut it. 
And that means progress gets cut. It's just that simple. And of considerable concern is the discouragement to the future leaders of research, to young scientists, that the country doesn't value medical and health research as highly anymore. So why pursue that as your profession? That's a big concern. That's a keep us up at night level concern. Can I stay on that subject for a second? Mm -hmm. You know, you've written about the dangers of misinformation, disinformation for public health. Mm -hmm. I guess, why is it so critical now that the research community really speak up and talk about the importance of evidence-based study and practice in terms of actually being able to improve health and well-being? Mm -hmm. Misinformation and disinformation have always been out there. There's no question about that. Whether you got that information from your great aunt or a magazine in a waiting room someplace, there's always been mis and disinformation, but it has escalated significantly now because of social media, largely, and also because there's a growing lack of trust in all enterprises that are connected with the government, all enterprises that people aren't personally familiar with. And I think part of the resolution is personal familiarity. We know that very few Americans can name a living scientist, for example. And I'm talking about maybe a quarter can, and some of the people who are named aren't living anymore. <laughs> Stephen Hawking is an example in that regard. But the very fact that there's scientists typically are invisible, it's problematic. Uh, the good news, the upside, is that people say, I'm talking about surveys here, not anecdotes. People say that they trust scientists in the hypothetical, not necessarily individuals because they don't know those individuals. They also say at very high levels, higher than scientists, but it's high for scientists, they trust healthcare professionals. So I'm talking about nurses, number one, physicians, others in the healthcare field. Sometimes I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit in the healthcare professions for the trust that the public rightly extends, rightly extends to us. So we're the people who ought to be countering mis and disinformation. And doing that in a coordinated way rather than scattershot is the goal of a new coalition that actually some of your listeners, Kyle, and their organizations might like to join. There's no cost to join it. It's a coalition for trust in healthcare and research. And it's just getting underway. It was recently launched at a meeting of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And it's worth taking a look, I think. And it's gonna involve some humility on everybody's part, not believing that we all have the answers and we'll just figure it out on our own, You know, very American to go your own way. This is time to work together. And we can make progress in beating back mis and especially disinformation. Now, one of the major issues that I've come across in talking about research is the workforce development and diversity in the research workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, what are some of the ways that healthcare and life sciences, these industries can improve the situation, the near, mid and, and long term? You know, how do they invest kind of further upstream to ensure that they've got the right people so that you can really start some of these breakthroughs, but also, you know, representing certain areas, certain populations so that people actually have more familiarity and probably more trust in the people doing the work for these organizations. You mentioned two really important aspects of increasing 
diversity. You know, our nation has become more diverse over the years. It's always been somewhat diverse, certainly compared to some other, especially Northern European countries. But we have become more diverse, and that's a rich resource that we haven't yet really put to work. There's a very strong business case for diversity, diversity of all kinds, diversity of points of view, of experience, of life experience, but also career preparation. It's critical to innovation. It's absolutely critical to innovation. So business leaders know that. They know they've got to stimulate diversity and put it to work for their workforce. So being mindful and proactive is an important place to start. But it's also something that the public sector can help stimulate. The National Science Foundation, for example, was recently funded by the Congress to do more in terms of driving diversity through making sure that there are more opportunities for people who haven't, through their families or other cultural restraints, haven't had the opportunity to pursue the STEM fields. The White House is now stood up an alliance, the Opportunity Alliance, to be proactive in this regard. The AAAS, which I also mentioned, has a very robust program. But we're not going to see change overnight. The point is, uh, we need to see change everywhere, all the time. It's like the movie that won the Academy Award, everything all the time, all at once, whatever his name was. Right? It's the right thing to do. And it's a smart thing to do. Excellent. So on top of funding and, and diversity, you know, health equity is something that we, we started talking about at the top. You know, it's really come to the fore, particularly for underserved communities that have a hard time benefiting from these breakthroughs in research, actually have a hard time being represented in the research itself. How do the medical and scientific communities kind of work together, kind of hand in hand, to ensure that there's improved care access, but also that the research is representative of more peoples so that it can be more widely applicable. But I know probably to your point, it'd probably be safer just to know how this particular treatment is going to impact certain individuals. Yes, well, I have both personal history and strong views on this. We've got to get there. So you mentioned in your nice introduction of me that years ago, I led a clinical trial at the time, the largest ever funded by NIH early in my career. And that trial, the Mr. Fit Project, so-called Mr. Fit, excluded women from the study population on the basis that, and this is what everybody thought, all the leaders in cardiovascular research actually thought this, not just as a gimmick or something, that everything that would be discovered in studying men would apply to women. You know, you know how utterly ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. And one of my jobs was to train people to recruit men to this population. And they got the question all the time, well, what about women? You know, and so here we were spouting this nonsense, but there wasn't anything in the literature other than common sense to confront that. Now that changed. Now I'm, I'm very proud of being part of the effort that got it changed, but it took federal action at the level of the Congress to change it. There's still a ways to go on that. And then when we talk about disadvantaged communities, it's equally bad and, and arguably worse with a, in some respects, terrible history behind it too, where populations were actively lied to and used for testing purposes in a totally unethical way. Now, we hope that we are past that at this point. 
but we've got a ways to go. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier about cost of healthcare, cost and access barriers are very real in trying to achieve equity in delivery of healthcare and the benefits of research. Another thing that needs to happen, it, we need to get a handle on those things, but we also need to be including the population, the ultimately affected population in all aspects of research, including planning what research should be conducted. One of my favorite sayings in this regard is the South African disability community developed this motto years ago called nothing about me without me. Nothing about me without me. It's just right on. It's exactly what we all should be thinking in bringing the community in. Research should be moving from the community up, not from the top down, which is you know not anywhere near as productive ultimately. We're proud of having initiated an effort at the NIH and working with them toward a workshop that was conducted last month on inclusive participation in clinical research, bringing together people who have done research about participation and also those who have been left out. That report's going to be written up and I believe will have an impact on NIH funding as well as that of other groups so that we can finally make some more significant progress in achieving health equity in every way, including research equity. So do you find then that really the next breakthroughs in scientific research are going to be more about process or, or is this something that's also going to be running in parallel with focus on certain disease? You mentioned Alzheimer's, but it sounds like you know it's not only diseases, but it's also how the, the research is conducted and then how it's made accessible. Is that fair to say? Some systemic changes, if you will, process changes will benefit everybody. It will raise all boats. Nobody knows for sure where the next breakthroughs are going to come from. And that's the whole point. If we knew, then they, they would already have been discovered. But what can happen in addition to constantly empowering the smartest people in the room, and I'm talking about in the country, to pursue their ideas and build in a kind of iterative process. In addition to that, we need some breakthrough kind of thinking. And that often does come from people who haven't been empowered in the past. And we will, I believe, benefit. Uh, there's a new institute, if you will, that's affiliated with the NIH, um, but is not actually a part of it the same way the other institutes are, called ARPA-H. And it's based on DARPA, you know, with high risk-taking work. So while it's not pointed at communities that have been disadvantaged, it certainly welcomes engagement from researchers from that community, and it embraces the concept of community engagement which we need. And that will benefit everybody. Awesome. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time today, joining us on the podcast. And, and really, thank you for all your advocacy work that you're doing out there. We do appreciate your time and your energy. Thank you, Kyle. And you can be an advocate too. So can everyone who's listening. It's time. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. For our listeners, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out with any healthcare-related questions or subjects that you think we should cover by emailing us at ksmurphy at techtarget.com. And if you like this episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Take care.
This is a Tech Target production.